You're listening to a podcast from 702. This hour, though, we focus on a very sensitive and a very important topic, that of self-harm. Self-harm is the act of deliberately inflicting pain and damage to one's body by means of cutting, of burning, of scratching, and self-poisoning through medication or substances to relieve emotional distress. And UNICEF, in their 2021 report, raising a concern around a growing phenomenon amongst particularly teenagers here in South Africa. And here to help us understand self-harm and self-mutilation is clinical psychologist Jeannie Carvey. Jeannie, a very good morning and welcome to the show. Hi there, Africa. Thank you so much for having me. Why do you think we are seeing um, this phenomenon growing in South Africa? Why, why has it become, and I put this in inverted commas, popular amongst teenagers in this country? Okay, such a beautiful question, and I think such a great point of departure for us to look at really meaningfully understanding self-harm. So um, self-harm, we need to understand in the context of the function that it serves for the nervous system. So if I can just take a moment to share a metaphor with you guys to understand the nervous system and then we'll see where self-harm fits in and why we're seeing the the increase in the incidence of it and the awareness of it. So you can think of your nervous system like a highway and its job is to get the cars from A to B. Now all of the space, all of the capacity in your nervous system is like the lanes of the highway and all the information coming into your nervous system is like the cars on the highway. And the fewer cars there are, the more um, lanes available over the greater period of time, obviously the traffic flows a lot more. Now, when that traffic starts to build up and there are fewer lanes and there's more cars, then we go from flow to anxiety or distress and then later anxiety when we get into that sort of bumper to bumper traffic and there isn't enough space in the, in the, on the highway for the cars to go from A to B. And when two cars try to be in the same lane at the same time, they can crash. And that's what we call trauma. It's this, these, these stuck unprocessed capsules of data in the nervous system, like crashed cars on the highway. And when this happens to a greater and greater extent, there's more crashed cars, new cars are crashing into those broken down cars. There's fewer lanes, more and more cars coming onto the highway. We can get into a state of burnout. Now, obviously, this is not a sustainable state for the highway to be in. And the nervous system has to do something to get the traffic flowing again. And there are many different ways that people try to regulate and calm their nervous system, try to get the traffic flowing again. And self-harm is one of those. So self-harm is a way for a person to try and build more lanes on their highway, try and build more capacity on their highway in order to get the cars flowing again. The way that um, pain works in terms of our dopamine receptors and sort of our endorphins And the release that happens when we self-harm can be a way for the nervous system to make temporary lanes available for all of that data to go through. Now, coming back to your question, you know, why are we seeing the increase in the incidence or the awareness of it is because, you know, we're living in the information age where there is so much data that is coming to our children, to our adolescents, and even to ourselves from all angles. There is so much information that our nervous system is having to take in. And adolescents have got vulnerable nervous systems. Their brain is still developing and is actually going through a very important last phase of maturation that can make it even more vulnerable than a child's brain or child's nervous system. And with all of this information and no space for it to go, self-harm is a way that teenagers or even adults, sometimes now children as well, are using to create some temporary lanes on the highway. Does that answer your question? 
It certainly does. In keeping with the analogy of a highway, the traffic buildup will be happening gradually, I imagine, right? And it will probably uh, take quite a bit of self-reflection and emotional maturity, if nothing else, for one to realize ahead of self-harming manifesting that, wait a minute, my traffic is building up and I need to find ways of opening up that, um, that highway. How, how do we, how do we see trouble ahead, for lack of a better word, when we are stuck on that highway? So it's so beautiful. Um, you know, so it can happen gradually over time, just with the stress and pace of life. I mean, life is incredibly high paced now, but it can also happen very suddenly. So if there is suddenly a huge influx of cars onto the highway, um, so a person goes through a traumatic event, a huge influx of cars, and the cars are speeding and they crash into each other, it can happen then quite suddenly. And if those cars don't get cleared off the highway, they can cause more problems. Obviously, we can't have crashed cars on the highway. They cause traffic to build up and new cars can even crash into them. So it can be um, over some gradually over time. It can just be, you know, the stress of, of life. Education is very high pressure for children now. I don't know if those of you out there, you see that your kids are doing work now in much younger grades than what we were doing them when we were in the same grade. The work is much more complex and more difficult. The competition is much more. Um, so it can happen gradually over time, but it can also happen when there is something big and sudden that doesn't get resolved and dealt with. And that's when we start to see dysregulation of the nervous system. So dysregulation of the nervous system has got three fallouts, the three things that happen when a nervous system gets dysregulated. The first thing that happens is that a person is unable to cope with the things that they used to be able to cope with. So they used to take things in their stride. They used to do so well at school. They used to cope with conflict with friends or as adults, you know, we used to be able to work longer hours. And now suddenly there are fewer and fewer stresses that we're able to tolerate. That's fallout number one is reduced capacity. Fallout number two is that we react to new situations as if they are threatening, even when they're not. So we can have a traumatic reaction to a very innocuous situation, even if it's not dangerous. That's fallout number two. So we call those triggers, right? And then fallout number three is that it can become part of a person's interactional style, that they actually are living in this sort of survival response all the time just to manage the flow on the highway. So we're looking out for things like, you know, um, any kind of dysregulation of sleep-wake cycles, any kind of emotional dysregulation, um, any kind of self-soothing behaviors, whether it's cutting or whether it's eating or whether it's zoning out on, on social media, um, disruptions in our sleeping cycles and not being able to just manage life like we used to, those would all be indications of fallout number one. Um, a person having disproportionate reactions to situations um, where they're overreacting. They're not overreacting. They're reacting to a situation as if it's threatening when it isn't. And then fallout number three would be things like starting to become very over-accommodating, people-pleasing, um, starting to feel um, um, the inability to set boundaries. So those would kind of be the indications of each of those three different fallouts. And it is very important, you know, children with and, and adolescents especially, without the, their frontal lobes, they don't have the ability to reflect like adults do. And so the adults in the, in the relationship, the parents in the relationship has to lend their child and their adolescent some lanes off their own highway in order to help them with the development of their nervous system and help them um, cope with day-to-day -day life.
Now, what's very interesting with, with cutting or self-harm in any way is that our social associations with self-harm bring about a whole bunch of shame. So the person might be self-harming in order to feel better and regulate their nervous system, and that builds two more lanes on the highway. But the shame and the self-judgment and the fear of disapproval from the environment brings on a thousand more cars onto the highway. And so in that way, the solution becomes the problem. I'm going to ask a question around whether or not certain people are more susceptible to that because something has to, once again, in inverted commas, attract you to the act of self-harming, right? Um, it's not a generally, um, I don't think, glamorized outcome, if you like, when your highway is um, uh, congested with traffic. Um, I, I don't remember seeing anything in popular culture, for example, that says to somebody, hey, this is a way of feeling better, so therefore try it. So it would be interesting to find out how, how people get to the act of uh, of self-harming. But let me remind listeners, my guest is Jeannie Carvey. She is a clinical psychologist. We're trying to understand self-harm and self-mutilation, and we certainly invite your calls on 011-883-0702 and your WhatsApp messages and voice notes, 072-702-1702. We're seeing, according to a UNICEF report, an alarming growing phenomenon, particularly amongst teenagers in this country who are participating in self-harm. And are you concerned as a parent about your child? Have you, um, have you found out that your child is self-harming? What has been that journey for you and your family? Were you yourself someone who was self-harming and overcame uh, the, um, the the matter? And how did you go about doing that? Because, yes, uh, Jeannie will be able to tell us all the wonderfully uh, psychology, terminology elements of it, but it is your story uh, that will ultimately perhaps resonate the best uh, with a fellow listener who might find themselves in a challenge right now. So we certainly invite your calls as well as your WhatsApp messages. Uh, Jeannie, back to, to the question I asked. What, what makes people more susceptible to self-harm? Why would they choose that as an outlet uh, when they're trying to create more uh, lanes in this highway traffic that is congested? That's such a great question. So we do see that with adolescents, there is some contagion effect um, in that self-harm can be contagious. Um, so adolescents are very, very focused on peer group learning. Um, and because adolescents are entering a very valuable stage of their development called differentiation to find connections in what we say a horizontal culture with friends and moving away from just doing things the way that our parents did them. It's a very important stage of growth where adolescents are more susceptible to peer pressure and more susceptible to learning from each other rather than learning from parents or teachers much to the, the great fear and frustration of parents and teachers, they learn from each other. So we do know that there is a contagion effect with self-harm where they can learn from each other. And even if they see it in social media or on a TV program, not as glamorizing it, but that um, there is some resonance with what was going on for the person and this is what they did, they can give it a try and it can be wonderfully relieving for them. I think, you know, when you're talking about the alarming increase, I think what we need to really put the focus on is not so much the behavior of self-harming, but what it is a symptom of. So a lot of times parents see their children self-harming and think that it's suicidal behavior, but it's actually not the same as suicidal, even parasuicidal behavior. It's actually that the child or adolescent or even the adult at this stage doesn't know another way to regulate their nervous system, doesn't know another way to build lanes on the highway. 
And so what is alarming is the overwhelm that our kids and our adolescents and ourselves are facing in terms of the pressure of life in 2023, life in the information age. It's just too much. So those UNICEF stats are showing us that there is just too much data and not enough space in the nervous system and how important it is to provide support, um, provide support to our kids, to our adolescents, and look for more meaningful ways of getting support for ourselves to build more lanes on the highway, but also to clear away those old traumas that um, you know might have happened in earlier stages of your life, clear away those capsules of unprocessed data, even if you've dealt with them emotionally, that information can still be sitting in your nervous system and then look at new relational scripts and strategies that help inform us of better ways of bringing cars onto the highway so that we don't get overwhelmed again. So I don't think it's a particular kind of person. I think that it is just the, the, um, the way that we are living. There are a lot of people who think that borderline personality disorder and self-harm go hand in hand. Um, but the recent studies are showing that it's more that People with borderline personality disorder have got vulnerable nervous systems. There's usually immense trauma, lots of broken down cars for people that um, end up being diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. And those people are, because they have a difficulty in establishing consistent, appropriate emotional closeness and a difficulty with effective interpersonal problem solving, they are more likely to resort to something like self-harm as a way of regulating their nervous system. But it's not that everybody who self-harms has, can be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or that everybody with borderline personality disorder, we can have a whole long discussion about the validity of that diagnosis, um, is actually self-harming. But people with vulnerable nervous systems who've been through a lot of trauma, who struggle to make use of other resources like connection or other coping mechanisms, who just don't have the, the real estate available on their highway, might resort to something like cutting if they don't have other options. Yeah. Uh, our first question is from Chris in Florida, who on the WhatsApp message asks um, uh, to explain if bipolar has an impact on the high rate of self-harm incidents that we're reporting in South Africa. I don't know the official stats, Chris, but thank you for your fantastic question. So, yeah, um, you know, border, um, bipolar mood disorder is obviously also dysregulation of the nervous system, unable to keep um, the control over the mood and we see the manic episodes and the depressive episodes and unable to keep a regulated mood that has a very low variance of flux between high and low. So everybody's got their ups, everybody's got their downs, but what we see in bipolar mood disorders, the the highs are are uncontrolled and the, the lows are very, very, very low. And so, yes, anybody that has got a difficulty in regulating their nervous system might be resorting to self-harm and self-harm in and of itself is not pathological. It's an indication of a nervous system that's struggling. And it's just because there is um, there's residual damage that can happen from the self-harm. Um, if a person cuts, they can hurt themselves unintentionally more than they, than they plan to. Um, but there's also a social stigma that is damaging around it. But self-harm, neurologically speaking, is actually not that much different to long-distance running. And the pain that we cause in our, in our body from long distance running or lifting weights or from getting a tattoo. Um, we had a long discussion on one of our groups the other day about clients who are self harming and, you know, some clients self harm by getting tattoos. 
and but that's socially appropriate but it's a, it's a very similar thing regulating calming the nervous system there's nothing inherently pathological about it but we have pathologized it because it's very frightening it looks like suicidal behavior it looks destructive and also because it's not a controlled way of regulating the nervous system the person can accidentally hurt themselves even more but we really need to destigmatize self-harm and see it as a symptom not as a condition see it as not a sign of mental illness see it not as a sign of pathology, but see that, okay, this person doesn't have other ways of regulating their nervous system. How can we support this nervous system better so that they don't need to self-harm rather than the self-harm being seen as the problem in and of itself? Uh, Chris, thank you very much indeed for that question. Um, another comment from a listener who chooses not to be named says, uh, Morning Africa, raising kids is not easy these days. I'm a mother of a teenage girl and I'm a present parent. But in grade seven, she started cutting herself on the thighs and wrists and covered it up with long sleeves. I discovered those by chance. She was shocked. I knew about the concept of self-harm or mutilation. I am a social worker at that, she writes. Uh, she says she thought it's a trend for them just to let out pain, saying that some of these are more of copycat behaviors. Mm, so, yeah, and, you know, Shema, I can just um, reach out to Anonymous then. So thank you so much for your courage and connecting with us. And we can hear the little bit of explanation there. You know, I am a present parent and this still happened to me. So a deep feeling of responsibility. How could this happen under my watch? But it can happen so easily because, yes, there is a contagion effect with adolescence. So, you know, maybe back in our day, it was, you know, kids smoking in the bathroom um, and they, that was a bit of a trend. Or maybe nowadays, you know, vaping or whatever it was that adolescents have got vulnerable nervous systems and they will look to their peers and see what is happening for my for my friend um, that they are doing to to deal with their pain of being an adolescent because it is a terribly fraught time it is one of the most difficult stages of development um, to be an adolescent so yes it can happen to any parent um, that no matter how present you are no matter how vigilant you are it can be contagion um, that your adolescence is giving it a try but also to just understand that, you know, our kids are not the direct result of our parenting. Our parenting just lends some space on the highway. And sometimes parenting doesn't provide enough space on the highway, and that can happen. But there's a lot of information that our adolescents are dealing with. I often just feel so grateful that there was no Facebook or WhatsApp when I was at school. Um, because if, you know, something bad happened with your friends, it would only be the school that knows. Now it's like 10,000 kids that know of your shame or your embarrassments or your inappropriate behavior or your misjudgments, or your impulsivity, the risks are much greater. So our kids are dealing with a lot more pressure than we can possibly imagine. Um, and their nervous systems are still developing. So anonymous, yes, absolutely. It can be contagion effect, but all adolescents have got, um, are in a vulnerable position of growing up in the information age and can be just seeking to regulate their nervous system and finding this from seeing what their friend did and finding that it did help, it did relieve some pain. It can then become um, can become habitual that this is their go-to for building more lanes on their highway. Indeed. Of course, we are speaking of self-harm um, and making an example of people cutting themselves, but sometimes it can be self-punching.
head bashing, biting, placing things beneath their skin, all manners of ways that people can be self-harming. We continue the conversation with Jeannie Carvey, who is a clinical psychologist, uh, UNICEF, raising a concern around the number of uh, teenagers, particularly, who are beginning to self-harm in South Africa. So we um, ask you for your calls on 011-883-0702. Are you a parent, perhaps, of a child uh, who is self-harming and uh, are seeking help? Uh, seeking to understand what uh, uh, might be contributing uh, to that. Uh, some wonderful advice already uh, from Ginny Carver, and we'll continue with our conversation uh, post the news headlines. We'll also be taking your WhatsApp messages and voice notes to 072-702-1702. Family Matters. We continue our conversation on understanding self-harm and self-mutilation. The UNICEF 2021 report uh, raising a concern around the phenomenon of self-harm, particularly around uh, rather involving teenagers in uh, this country. We invite your calls on 02... (laughs) 011-883-0702. Your WhatsApp messages and voice notes to 072-702-1702. Our guest this hour is clinical psychologist Jeannie uh, Carvain. Jeannie, lovely to have you uh, staying with us, of course, for this hour. I raised a point just before we went to the news that, yes, we're talking about uh, teenagers and young adults and children, sadly, as we've been uh, reflecting, uh, using sharp tools to cut themselves, to scratch themselves, to pierce their skin. But as I said, it could also be self-punching, it could be head-bashing, it could be biting, uh, self-hitting, that perhaps won't leave as evident a mark as somebody using a sharp tool to scratch themselves. Uh, very much so. I just want to come back to the beautiful conversation you and uh, Rale Bukhile were having about that heartbreak. And did you see that within fractions of a split second, Africa, you could recall that experience? Yes. So it was too much information for your little nervous system to process that, you know, I can't get these these um, shoes because if I get them, my mom can't give all of my cousins. And that was heartbreaking for you. Now, that is a beautiful example of a broken down car. And even as an adult, you understand it differently. You can understand and, and you can empathize with your mom. And um, so it's not a logical thing. It's just any time there was an overwhelm of the nervous system. So that conversation that they're going to be having later of those first heartbreaks, you see how you quickly, quickly remember it's there on the surface. That is an indication of, you know, those broken down cars. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you will be dysregulated, but isn't it amazing how on the surface it is? You know, um, Aurelia Pukhila asked you and immediately, he said, well, not really heartbreak, but I do remember this time. So I just wanted to reflect on that of, you know, how those experiences when we're developing can actually sit there and be right there just underneath the surface, even many years later, even when we understand them differently, that feeling has created a memory in our bodies that can sometimes take up space on our highways. Now, coming to your question about, you know, self-harm, yes, it can be, but it can also be things like trichotillomania, pulling out your hair. It can also be dermatillomania, so like picking at your skin. So it can be many different ways of getting your the, your um, neurotransmitters flowing in a way that creates some space on your nervous system, space on your highway. So it doesn't have to only be cutting; it can be other things in which the dopamine and the endorphins can be can be um, can be elicited in the neurotransmitters by creating some pain. And like I said, it can even be other clients, adult clients even, that will pick their skin and they will not be able to understand it. They'll feel a great amount of shame and embarrassment about it. But when you understand that actually it's just dysregulation of the nervous system, we need to understand 
Why does your highway not have enough space? What can we do to resource it? What can we do to tow away the broken down cars that may be sitting there for years and years and years? And what can we do to make toll gates so that there's not too much information coming onto the highway that the highway becomes overwhelmed again? In fact, let's then shift to that part of the conversation because quite rightly, uh, earlier you said that in treating self-harm, let's not focus on the self-harm itself. In fact, it's more important to try and understand why there is a nervous system de- uh, dysregulation. And if you treat that, it will then automatically address the issue of self-harm. Yes, yeah, so it will reduce the need for the self-harm um, and give the nervous system some options of how it's going to resource. So we obviously look at resourcing. So there's things that people can do on their own to resource, like yoga, meditation, mindfulness, um, looking after themselves very well. But sometimes when the nervous system is too full, um, you know, I sometimes think like, you know, meditation is what you do when you are already feeling well and you want to feel better. Because if there's, if your nervous system is too full, if that, if that highway is congested, you can't get there to build those lanes. And sometimes you then need to have other ways of resourcing like therapy. Um, in terms of dealing with those broken down cars, we'd have our trauma informed therapies. And in building renew relational scripts, we can then have more management techniques and interactional therapies. So what we're seeing now in understanding the nervous system is the rise of brain-based therapies. So brain-based therapies are different. They incorporate talk therapy as part of the process. But brain-based therapies focus on introducing the pattern of brain waves into the nervous system that can give us access to resourcing, clearing away trauma, and building those toll gates. Um, and kinds of brain-based therapy that we that we are that are very popular at the moment would be like somatic experiencing, brain spotting, EMDR, BWRT, and the integrated brain-based approach. Um, those are all wonderful ways of working with the bottom of the brain app, teaching the nervous system how to regulate itself better, clearing away those broken down cars, and then creating new toll gates. But the things that people can do on their own are all of those things that we sometimes don't have capacity to do when we're overwhelmed which is the resourcing of the yoga, the mindfulness, eating well, and even sometimes medication. So I'm not a psychiatrist, so I'm not going to comment on the medication, but a lot of times people do benefit from going on to some kind of medication to help them with the resourcing. But if we resource without towing away the broken down cars and building toll gates, eventually the highway will become oversaturated again. And that is where we look at the benefits of brain-based psychotherapies. And what can we as um, family, relations, friends of uh, people we love who are self-harming, what can we do to help? So first of all, don't freak out as a parent. Um, don't freak out and definitely don't think it's the same as suicidal behavior. So I think the, you know, the fear of suicide strikes deep into the hearts of every parent of an adolescent. And the risk of suicide is very real with adolescents because they don't have impulse control, They've got poor temporal awareness, so that's the awareness of time. Um, so for them, their struggles feel so overwhelming and they feel like they're going to be permanent. Um, so teenagers are at risk for suicide. So I'm not saying the risk isn't real, but self-harm and suicidality are two very different things. So the first thing is to definitely, definitely don't freak out. And secondly, is not to address the self-harm behavior with the person that you've noticed is doing this behavior but rather to be supporting them in whatever it is that their struggle is and rather look at getting them treatment for the dysregulation of their nervous system rather than treating the self-harm as the problem in and of itself. So don't freak out and then definitely look at getting help. 
and you know really listen to really listen to your kids and really listen to your adolescents you know and that beautiful example you gave about the the sandals um and I'd, i i forgot the name of that particular kind of sandal but you're going to get it at Cuthbert's yes. um you know for us <laughs> for us as adults we might look and say it's not a big thing but for you in that moment it was so huge and so relevant that you remember it all these years later and so it's to develop the skill of empathically listening to the struggles of our adolescents you know and children as adults we think we have the monopoly on stress but we don't realize how stressful it is we don't remember how stressful it was to grow up and what can seem like a really a no big deal to us can be incredibly overwhelming for for our kids um and so there's a difference between listening empathically and that's not to um agree or condone or reinforce what they're feeling but just to unconditionally accept what they're feeling before we try to teach them and guide them it's all a matter of timing so you know my little guy he's 6 and a half and he was very upset the other night in cappuccinos because nobody was listening to him uh, when he was telling them to turn the music down now, of course they're not going to turn the whole the music down in a whole restaurant because of one 6 and a half year old who wants less music but at the time his little heart was so broken you know he was so upset and i listened and i acknowledged his feelings he felt ignored he felt upset that was very hard for him and then later when his nervous system had regulated itself then i could say to him but you know what bugs there's loads of people in the restaurant they're not going to change the music for any one person but you know next time if you feel the music's too loud we can maybe go sit in a different area or we can go out so it's a very much a matter of timing and how you listen and not to be corrective listening to the struggles of your kids and your adolescents but to understand for them how very real it is so i guess the three major takeaways would be please don't freak out um please rather address the underlying dysregulation of what is overwhelming for them at this phase of their development and to develop the skills of empathic listening and not corrective listening and support your children through their struggles rather than pathologizing the way that they are trying to regulate themselves and without thinking that you have to completely protect them from the difficulties of life but rather empowering them with the skills to cope with the difficulties of life that's very sage advice and i love that nickname for your child bugs but that's a conversation for another day <laughs> let's finish off with a couple of questions on the whatsapp line somebody saying uh, could self harming also be general neglect of oneself refusing to eat nutritional foods neglecting body image by not bathing every day dressing nice clean clothes or general untidiness around the house and their room Yeah so I mean those can definitely be signs of dysregulation um you know when you've got space in your nervous system even the, like the task of showering if you think about going to take a shower and you've got capacity in your nervous system it's a quick and easy thing to do but if you are already overwhelmed if you are already in that burnout if you're already com- your highway is completely jammed you think about showering is a very complex task you've got to undress got to switch on the water you've got to get in there's a stages in which you wash yourself and you've got to get out and you've got to dry yourself and you've got to redress yourself so um i'm not quite 100% sure that it's self signs of self harm but it can definitely be signs of a nervous system that doesn't have the capacity for problem solving and um, you know when i worked at the psychiatric hospital one of the things we would ask the the patients when they came in um was what are the steps involved in making a cup of tea and when you are um regulated in your nervous system you can say well you know i put on the kettle and then i go and get a cup put in the tea bag put in a teaspoon of sugar and you can go through the steps but when a person has got no capacity they are dysregulated they cannot even tell you the steps 
of making a cup of tea. So I don't know if, um, you know, technically those behaviors are classified under self-harm if we have to look at the diagnostic manual, but you're spot on there that the, the inability to be organized in your problem solving is also a sure sign that there's dysregulation of the nervous system. Another question is, those people who are doing drugs and are trying or tying rather their hands and or legs and use needles all around their bodies to take uh, drugs, can that be classified as self-harm? Yeah, it's definitely also ways of trying to regulate the nervous system. So, um, you know, the solution becomes the problem. So a person sitting with a great amount of pain, and I always say people don't do drugs to feel good. People do drugs to feel less bad. But when we look at, you know, what we would say adaptive coping mechanisms, so eating well, exercising, connecting with friends, all of those things, that we call it an adaptive coping mechanism because the cost is much less than the reward, than the payoff. But when we look at maladaptive coping mechanisms, so self-harm, drug abuse, um, you know, hypersexual behavior, lashing out, it's not that inherently it's a worse way of regulating the nervous system, but actually the cost of it is much greater in that, for example, with drugs, the solution becomes the problem. And the person is willing to do whatever it takes, no matter how much pain it causes them in the short term or in the long term, they are willing to do whatever it takes in order just to get that relief, even though over time they are in a worse and worse off state. So yes, also a sign of a dysregulated nervous system. You know, Russell Brand does beautiful work on addiction, and he says the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. He says the opposite addiction, opposite of addiction is connection. And what we know is that connection is one of the most important regulators for the nervous system. So I definitely think we're definitely two branches of the same tree there. Yeah. I imagine in, I suppose, responding to someone who's self-harming uh, will will differ if it's a child, a six-and-a-half-year-old. Um, uh, I mean, Bugs is not self-harming, but at least demonstrated uh, a, a, um, a scenario where there was a nervous system dysregulation. How you respond to him is very different to a teenager, for example, and very different to a 45-plus uh, woman, a man. I think that the language might become more sophisticated, but the principles are the same. You know, I saw Simon Sinek the other day where he was talking about um, going to watch a friend's play and the play was absolutely terrible. And then after the show, the friend was full of adrenaline and she asked him, what did you think? And he said, it was so much fun to see you in the play. And then it was only the next day um, where he said, where he phoned up and said, can I tell you what I think about the play? And then she was receptive to the constructive criticism. So I think the language might become more sophisticated, but the principles are the same. First regulate, first contain, and then empower with a new way of looking at it, a new skill or a reframe. But when we come in too quickly to corrective listen, uh, at least this or at least that, but look at it this way, look on the bright side, no matter how old you are, that interruption of your emotion will cause a capsule of dysregulated information to be stuck into your nervous system. So always giving people the space to feel what they're feeling from beginning, middle to end. Let them come into regulation in their nervous system through connecting with you. And then later, when they are more regulated, then you can offer advice, then you can offer a reframe, then you can offer a skill or a new way of looking at things. And so the language might become more sophisticated, but actually the principles remain the same across the lifespan. 
I imagine it's the same as far as genders are concerned. There's often this, uh, um, I don't know where it comes from, this myth that it's often girls who are self-harming. But but boys and other gender identifications within the spectrum also do, don't they? Absolutely. I think boys just, you know, have um, more opportunities for rough play with one another. Um, so they get the opportunity to go and bash into each other quite hard on the rugby field. Or they have the opportunity to, like, punch their friend in the arm. Um, and that's more socially appropriate. Girls are taught to internalize aggression. Um, girls are taught that to not display aggressive behaviors. If you know, there's no, um, you know, it's only now in the last, like, 20 years that girls are playing rugby and contact sports. And even then, it's still not, you know, as common as boys playing contact sports. So I think that just as girls have got, you know, more socialized ways of platonic touch with other girls and boys have less opportunities for platonic touch with one another, boys also have more opportunities to engage with condoned um, aggression, um, which then helps regulate the nervous system with that deep pressure and that biofeedback and that proprioceptive feedback, and girls do not. And perhaps that is why girls are seen more likely to self-harm because they don't get the same opportunities for rough physical contact with one another that's socially appropriate. Uh, let's end on this uh, before um, I say goodbye. Uh, there is the general or generally held uh, opinion that uh, children, kids and teenagers will generally grow out of self-injuring behaviours. So many people ask, what's the point of treatment? Um, yeah, so they definitely can as the nervous system becomes more regulated. But to understand that it's a symptom of a deeper problem. So even though they grow out of the symptom they might develop other kinds of fallout of the dysregulation later in life. So just because they will grow out of the self-harm behavior doesn't mean necessarily that the underlying problem has gone away. They might just find other ways when they have access to more money, when they have access to more substances, when they've got access to gambling, when they've got access to sex, when they've got access to other ways of regulating their nervous system, it might just go from one to the other, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those new ways are adaptive ways of coping. And also so we can protect the integrity and the health of the nervous system from developing, especially that fallout number three, where it becomes part of their relational style if we treat early. So remember, we're not treating the self-harm. We are treating the dysregulation of the nervous system that is showing itself to us through behaviors like like self-harm. Ginny, thank you very much. I think this has been a very important conversation and obviously listeners will be able to access it on 702.co.za. Ginny Carvey is a clinical psychologist and for the last hour we've been trying to understand self-harm and most importantly the dysregulation um, that uh, Ginny has so repeatedly reminded us of. Thank you very much for this.